I'm thankful that you're here this morning, and I want to address a single question in our message this morning, and that is this question. Why is God pro-life? Why is God pro-life? Um, I, I think the answer to that is important. I will say from the outset that uh, that question implies, uh, if you will, a, a pejorative opinion against those Christians who do not feel the way that I do and I trust we do as regards abortion or the care for those who have found themselves in the midst of difficult circumstances. They don't choose the same approach that we do. And uh, there's a, if you will, a, a, a strong rebellion against the notion that, therefore, to be a Christian, you must be pro-life. I'm not saying that, by the way. I am saying that I do believe that the Bible is clear that God is pro-life. And I think the evidence is indisputable. I could offer a dozen points to this sermon, but I've narrowed it to three. These are not perhaps the three most important, but they're pretty close. So, I want to answer the question again, why is God pro-life? And the first answer to that that I would offer is simply because man is uniquely made in the image of God. Turn to Genesis 1. These would not be unfamiliar words to any of us, but I assure you it will help us to read them again. Verse 26, Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Why is God pro-life? Because man is uniquely made in the image of God. I made this point repeatedly, but it just cannot be reiterated too many times. There is no aspect of the creation of God that is described in this way except humanity. Only people are described as being created in the image of God. There is no animal, no tree, no plant, no insect, no other aspect of creation that is described this way. If you read Genesis 1 and 2, you will see that God created all of these different aspects of creation, and he did so by, by int intricate design. He decided that these things would take these shapes and have these characteristics, and that all of these things would be according to his design. And yet, on day six of creation, God determined that he would create man. And he decided that man should be created in his own image. So why is God pro-life? 
because God cares more about people than he does anything else. That is not to suggest that God cannot adequately care for or genuinely care for everything else. God is not anti-nature. God is not anti-animal kingdom. God is not anti-anything except unrighteousness and mockery of the glory of God. He created man, however, in such a way that man would be the crown jewel of creation and the way to accomplish that in the wisdom of God, not the creation of man, not the wisdom of man. It is not man's purview to determine that man has authority over such things. God has determined that this decision would be made by God for the glory of God. Genesis 1, let us make man in our image after our likeness. You'll note the pronoun is plural. Let us. It's the earliest occurrence of what has come to be called the Trinity. God is three in one. Clearly, he's referencing the presence of the Son, the presence of the Spirit. Let us. The us there doesn't include anybody who is pre-man who is a man. So Greg Belser didn't exist prior to Adam because neither did you and neither did anyone else. It's not a committee. It's not a committee of God polling people and asking them, what do you think? Should man be the crown jewel? No, God determined this and he makes this decision and he determines that man should be made after his likeness and he breathes, Genesis 2 tells us, he breathes into the nostrils of man the breath of of life. God has given man a unique created uh, location, a, if you will, a unique created status that he has not given to anyone else or anything else. So why is God pro-life? Because God decided that man would be ultimate in his creation. He tells us plainly, verse 28 of Genesis 1, he blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all the rest of creation. Fish, birds, every living thing. Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of all the earth, every tree with seed in his fruit. You have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, every bird of the heavens, everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. God determined that man would have dominion over these things. So God is pro-life because God has made man in the image of God. And that as a result of that, man is different. It's not a small thing, if you think with me for a moment. When God creates the sacrificial system in the book of Leviticus for Israel, you'll note that there were other cultures by this time. The Jewish culture was fledgling, just getting started, and, and uh, God is giving instructions about the sacrificial system and so forth. These other cultures had gods that were the manufacturer of the minds of men. So old Joe over there in that culture and old Bill over there in that culture, uh, they came up with gods and those gods that are made by man require child sacrifice. But when you read Leviticus, 
God's sacrificial system has nothing to do with the sacrifice of humans. In fact, God considers the sacrifice of humans anathema. He considers it to be perversion and says that the reason ultimately why he will destroy the Canaanites, and he does so later as Joshua circles back and brings the children of Israel across the Jordan and into the promised land, he, if you will, brings a just reward to the Canaanites in part because they practice child sacrifice. I assure you that in the Jewish sacrificial system, bulls died, goats died, sheep died, pigeons died. They died. They died because they are not created in the image of God. And they are a part of the sacrificial system precisely because they are not created in the image of God. But God will and does not in any way believe, teach, advocate that his people, that any people should somehow bring disdain to the life of others, that we should bring violence to the life of others. Why is God pro-life? Because man is uniquely made in the image of God. Let us not ever forget that. We are the special creation of God, and we have a special status that God has ordained. There's a second reason, and that is simply because the taking of life is the work of Satan, not God. It is the work of Satan, the enemy of God. Consider Genesis 4. The first sin occurs in Genesis 3, and God announces a curse on Adam and Eve. And then Genesis 4 tells us that uh, they have children. They have two sons. They are named Cain and Abel. And uh, the Bible says that Abel, well, the second of the two boys, was a righteous man. Cain, on the other hand, was unrighteous. They both went through the externals of religious practice. They brought sacrifices to God. But God rejects Cain and his sacrifices because he is unrighteous, because he has no regard. Today, we might characterize Cain as the first hypocrite. He is a hypocrite. He's going through the motions of worship, but his heart is far from it. He has no regard for God. So he, he notices that God accepts the sacrifice of his brother, so as is normal, typical of sinners who compare themselves to others, particularly brothers, perhaps, Cain decides that he is jealous. He begins to be jealous or envious of his brother. And ultimately, he resorts to violence. If you will, look at Genesis 4, verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you're cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Because the taking of life is the work of Satan, the enemy of God. 
There's an explanation related to this passage, Genesis 4, that occurs in the New Testament, 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. 1 John 3, 11. Here's the way the Apostle John explains Genesis 4. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, a reference to Satan, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Why did Cain resort to murder? Because Cain was of the evil one, and he was unrighteous, because he was following the lies, the witness of Satan. This is the methodology of Satan. Consider what, how Jesus describes the work of Satan in John chapter 8. Consider these words as regards Satan. Verse 44, speaking to the Pharisees who were protesting Jesus, he says of these Pharisees, verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. I would ask you, when is the beginning? When was the beginning? The answer is Genesis chapter 4. He was a murderer from the beginning. And where is the first murder located in history? Genesis 4, Cain rises up and slays his brother Abel. John tells us that the reason that he does so is because he is of his father, the devil. Jesus tells us in John 8 that murder is, in fact, the methodology, if you will, the go-to strategy of the devil. He is a liar and a murderer. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar. And he is the father of lies. He is a murderer, and murder is his work. Now, why, I would ask you, is the enemy of God resorting to murder? Why that strategy? There's any number of devious strategies he could choose, but why murder? I would suggest to you that the reason is, is because God is, in fact, pro-life. If you will, the, the, the greatest harm that the enemy of God can do is to seek to wound God at the place of God's highest value. I know what he loves, and I'm going to attack there. I know what he values. I'm going to attack there. Why is the enemy of God a murderer? Because God is not. Because God hates murder. There are only ten commandments. The first four directly relate to our relationship to God. The fifth being the Sabbath. And then he moves into our understanding of how to relate to one another. And the first commandment as relates to one another is murder. Don't murder. Don't take another person's life in a violent way. God values life. God gives supreme value to life. In fact, again, go back to Leviticus. Read the Le Levitical code and you will see that as God organizes Israel around his expectations, he has explicit exp uh, 
details as to how you should respond to people as regards murder, even over against accidental death, what we might call manslaughter. One would require the death penalty, an eye for an eye. The other would not require that, would require some sort of payment, would, would require some sort of, if you will, recompense. But manslaughter was not treated the same as murder. I, I want to suggest to you that God is pro-life and that Satan works against him at that very point because he knows that is the ultimate and supreme value of God. God is pro-life. It seems abundantly clear to me. And God has orchestrated his word and ultimately his people in such a way as to be advocates for life. We are to love life. Everything, everything that, is, that works, in, as it were, in the constellation, if you will, the orbit of our relationships is based on the fact that people have dignity. Everything is based upon this. That's why God is anti-injustice. That's why God is anti-anger. That's why God is anti-jealousy, envy, covetousness, and on and on and on we could go. Why does God tell us to watch our tongue? Because we hurt people with our tongue. Why, why does all of this matter? Because people matter. You can't bless God and in the next sentence criticize unmercifully one of God's created people. You can't do that. God, the book of James tells us this is contra-Christianity. This is not the nature that God has placed within us. Instead, he has told us that we are to respect life and we are to revere life and we're to treat people like God treats them, with value, with dignity. We are to value and treat people accordingly. This is not difficult for us to conceptualize, but it is profoundly difficult for us to do. I want to suggest to you that in spite of the difficulty, we must nonetheless labor. We live in a world that is scarred by sin, if you will, cursed even by, skin, by sin. And uh, as a result, one day, even creation, the Bible tells us, longs for the day of redemption. There is death and decay all around us. And even creation longs for the day where none of that will exist anymore. Glory to God. God is pro-life. But there is a third reason, and I would suggest it is as important as any reason we could muster. Why is God pro-life? I would simply say because the gospel of Jesus Christ demands it. It demands it. Let me say it a different way. If God is not pro-life then Jesus came for no reason. And I don't for a minute, nor do you, I trust, believe that Jesus came for no reason. Let me show you this in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54 
I've said many times this is the longest section in the Bible on the resurrection. And in 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle is arguing that if Jesus is not raised from the dead, if Jesus does not conquer death, then in fact, God is a liar, the Bible is untrue, and that you are wasting your time. And that he, Paul, who is advocating that Jesus was raised from the dead, if he is not raised from the dead, then Paul is a liar, and that ultimately God, who told Paul these things through his word, is also a liar. Which is to say, then, that if Jesus was not raised from the dead, you are still in your sins, and the only thing you have to look forward to is death. And that is nothing to look forward to. Because there is no promise of life. So in the midst of all of that, his concluding paragraph here in that long section in 1 Corinthians 15, I would commend that you read that uh, on your own time, perhaps. I'll be quick here. Verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. And here he quotes from Hosea in the Old Testament, chapter 13, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he has just recounted the entire biblical story in two verses. Maybe you didn't see it. Notice what he says. The sting of death is sin. The sting of death is sin. In other words, what's the, what's the power, if you will, of death in our lives? The answer is sin. Where is that found in the Bible? Ultimately, that's the story of Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 3. He goes all the way back to the first occurrence of sin and says, consider what happens. There is a curse of death. They are cursed to die. The curse takes power, takes precedence over their previously pristine, innocent condition. Now they are cursed, and death is brought to bear on mankind. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. Again, where is the law found? Again, go back to the Bible. God gives us the law in Exodus, Leviticus. He numbers. He gives us this law, and he tells us, the consequences of this law, ultimately the failure to obey these things brings death. The power of sin is in the law. Think about it today. God, uh, the legislature here, not God, the legislature would make a law and they would empower someone to enforce it. That's the power of the law. The, the lawman is going to enforce the law. And the power of that law is in the power of enforcement. And, of course, the state has the power of enforcement. Well, how much more does God have the power of enforcement of the laws that he has prescribed? He does. The apostle is making clear that we have a problem. We are sinners, and we stand under the power of the law against our sin. But he concludes in verse 57 and says, but thanks be to God, there's an antidote. There is a solution. There is a fix. There is a remedy. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
The gospel demands that God be pro-life because the gospel requires that there be sinners condemned to death because of the power of the law. The Bible is clear that we are all in, on equal footing. We are all sinners under the power of sin, under the power of the law. We need a Savior. Enter Jesus. God sends his only begotten son into the world, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might rescue you, that he might become sin who knew no sin for you, that he might save you, that he might put an end to death. Thus he can say in verse 55, Oh, death, where is your victory? He mocks death. Who would do such a thing? We know that death is coming for us all. The Bible is clear in 1 Corinthians 15. The perishable must put on the imperishable. The corruptible must put on the incorruptible. Well, the only way that happens is that we walk through the doorway of death. The perishable must perish. We must come to the end of our bodily lives. I think about this often now as I'm getting a little older. I'm keeping track of the ages of when people die. I know the rest of you are never doing that. But I am. And increasingly, I find myself getting closer to the age of when people are dying. And I'm thinking about this. And I'm wondering, you know, like humans do. What about that? What about me? How much time do I have left? What will I be doing? What kind of shape will I be in? Will I be sick? Will I be at home? Will Susan be here? Will Susan not be here? On and on. You know, i got all these millions of questions. Like any normal human, I think. I don't think I'm too peculiar. But I will tell you, friend, it is a fact that one day the perishable must perish. It must. And the only antidote for this rag of a body is to get a better one, to get a different one, to get an imperishable one. Because this one is going to die. So how do I know that God is pro-life? Because that's the only antidote that's going to save me. You see, God created me in his image, just like you. But because of sin and because of the law, death has factored into your life. But God has an answer even for that. He has promised to rescue you from sin and death by means of his son, the Lord Jesus. If you didn't need a rescue, you don't need a savior. And if you don't need a savior, God wasted his time in sending you one. I've said it this way many times. If that's not true, God owes an apology to his only son.
But of course he doesn't. It was necessary that Jesus would come, would fulfill the requirements of the law that you cannot, and it's necessary for you to look to Jesus today. God is pro-life because God is anti-death. Death is the strategy of the enemy. Death is the consequence of sin. And God is a God of life, and a God of hope, and a God of righteousness and holiness. God is a God of glory, and there is no glory in the death of the children of God. There is only glory in the ultimate rescue of the children of God from death. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your victory? There is no victory of death over the people of God. God is decidedly pro-life because Jesus came to give us life. I am, he said in John 11, the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, yea, though he die, yet shall he live. And he looked his dear, precious friend, Martha, whose brother Lazarus had died in the eye and asked her, do you believe this? And Martha said, yes. I would ask you today to consider your own affections for Jesus and then your resolve to become one who advances the way of life, eternal life, and the security of those who pursue the needs of this life until we die. Let us be faithful in joining God at holding out our own hand and saying, I am pro-life, I am pro-God, I am pro-Savior, I am pro-victory over the consequences of sin. Let us work to advance the way of God everywhere we can as long as we have breath. One day the perishable will perish. And on that day, the champion of life, the ultimate champion of life, will reach into our very being and say, come home. Yes, indeed. May it be said of us that we are the followers of Christ. Pray with me now. Father, we follow you in the way of God. We want, Father, to pursue you, to love you, to honor you. Please, Lord, give us grace. Help us to love well, to serve well, to care long for people, and to be involved in their circumstances. We know the effects of sin, the results of sin, the pain and sorrow of sin. We know the earthly and eternal consequences of sin. We are not ignorant of any of this. So because of that, Lord, let us be advocates for life. Let us be advocates for those who are the weakest and the most wounded among us. Let us seek to right injustice. Let us seek, Father, to be advocates for the way of God at every hand. Thank you, Lord, that you care deeply for us and for the way of God in our midst. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.